Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. Today's program was produced on Williakali country of the Barkindji Nation, with interviews collected across stolen land. I'd like to pay respects to traditional owners and their elders past and present, and acknowledge the compounding impact of natural disaster in our settler colonial state on First Nations people. I'm Megan Williams. Make sure you've got sandbags and make sure you're ready because this is above the one in 100 year flood. All our preparation and our flood management plan was all based on that level and it's just doubled it. The floodwaters have arrived after a couple good years that followed disastrous drought in the Murray-Darling Basin. Today on Earth Matters, we'll be hearing from women living 500 kilometres apart and preparing for floods in their communities. Lorraine Looney manages the caravan park in Menindi, where prepare to evacuate orders have just been issued. But first, we'll hear from Tuesday Brow, a Turumbri resident that was forced into her boat as floodwaters arrived with haste in mid-October. These interviews were conducted and produced by Dan Schultz for Waterwatch on 2Dry FM in Broken Hill. So when when did your house get get hit by the by the flood? Because I know I saw some photos online that you posted of the of the water actually inside your house. Um, yeah. So on the fifteenth, we put out a call to sandbag. And by the 17th, it was here. So, you know, it was only, you know what the Murray River's like. All, all these rivers, they're low and slow, you know. It just creeps in. doesn't come in in a big wave. It just <laughs> creeps in. And so on the 17th, it arrived. And it was coming up from the lagoon from across the plains and then coming up from the rivers. And the two meet together where I am. I'm right in the middle. Yeah, so, you're, you're at Turumbri, which I, I've never been to Turumbri, but could could you just... Tell me a little bit about how that that place interacts with the with the river there. So we're downstream of Achuka, and Achuka is a meeting of the waters. You've got the Goulburn and the Campaspe coming in there. You know, it's a big dilemma there. They've had lots of flooding and major issues there. But mm-hmm. then that water comes down to Turumbri, where we've got the Turumbri Weir. That, that weir's open now. There is no, no structure in between. They've taken it all to pieces, so the water's just going straight down. It's heading down. Um, Kerrang's flooding, and as you go down, you, it's heading towards Swan Hill now, you know, so, um, and then after Swan Hill, then you've got Naya and Vinifer and then, you know, onto Woodwood and all those little towns. And then you've got um, Robin Vale, you know, so they're all, they, they, you know, I hope they know what's coming. I hope they know what's coming. I've tried as much as possible saying, make sure you've got sandbags and make sure you're ready because this is above the one in 100 year flood. At my house, I've got the one in 100 year mark, which is 90, whatever it is, 93 point, whatever it was, you know, there's a mark and all the buildings, when I moved here 30 years ago, all the buildings had to be above that mark. And so all our preparation and our flood management plan was all based on that level. And it's just doubled it. It's, it's twice as high as that. Mm.
we've got two little hills on the property. They're only small hills, but they're sand hills. So we've got our boats on trailers up on the sand hills and we're living in the boats. Um, you know, luckily they're the sort of boats you can live in, um, like my Winambi that's, you know, I've been on her for uh, only, she's only two years old, but I've been on her for, what, three months um, that I've lived on her down the down the Darling and down this river, down the Murray. So, you know, she's very livable. So that that's a wonderful thing. I've, what foresight we had to build a good boat <laughs> during COVID, you know. <laughs> it's just one long story, isn't it? Yeah. It's a little surprise. We've got two years of COVID now. River Murray flows were expected to peak at 120 gigalitres a day, but the outlook is now far more menacing. The peak is forecast to reach 135 uh, in early December. Uh, that does not leave a lot of time. Only weeks left to protect waterside communities from ending up underwater. And how are you guys going emotionally? Yeah, yeah, it can be tough. Um, you know, good day today, good day today. And yesterday, yesterday I went into town for the first day in 16 days. I've got to get in a boat to paddle over to my neighbour's place where I've got a car and then I drive into town. Mm. So, you know, the first day was yesterday and, gosh, there's so many people with sad stories. And um, But we're just, you know, it's the waiting, I think. It took so long to get here and then it's going to take so long to leave that there's no time frame. And, you know, I think humans are goal-orientated. We like to know when the end of something is, you know, but there is none. There isn't one. Hmm. So that can be really tiring because you're constantly looking at these levels of the water going, is it up? I think that's gone up. Oh, no, it's gone down. <laughs> I think it's gone down. But, oh, look, two centimetres, it went down. And that gives cause for, for joy, you know, oh, it's going down. Oh, sh- it's gone up again. You know, like, yeah. No one can surely be complaining about not enough water now. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good. It's good to hear that you still have a bit of a sense of humour, and, and I know you would have lost a fair bit in the floods. Yes. I saw waterlogged bookshelves and things like that. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, we, we lifted everything up above the one in 100 and then as we realised it's still coming, we went, oh, so we lifted it up another shelf and, oh, we lifted it up another shelf and soon there's nowhere to put anything, you know. Yeah. So we've got stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff in every room. Uh, yeah. It, look, it gives gives pause for a, a great cleansing. It's a great cleansing, I'm considering it. It's absolutely staggering what is floating away. I've just lost about a 2,000 litre um, uh, stainless steel milk vat. Oh. It, it's just gone. It's just headed down the, down the river. Sunday and Monday, we are expecting more widespread rain then, which will no doubt place further pressure on these already swollen river systems. Further northwest from here in areas like Swan Hill and Mildura, they're being urged to prepare now for their own deluge in the first week of November. But in some good news, Shepparton isn't expecting any major flooding. As for Echuca, these floodwaters are expected to stay this high for several days yet. For several days I have seen reports of, of the water quality being very, very poor and, and impacting uh, a lot of that aquatic life. Are you seeing some of that um, yes. where you are? Yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a terrible thing. The water here, even though we 
uh, we're not directly on the river, so if you understand the lagoon, we receive a lot of the water from the plains, mm. and that water is on the paddocks and throughout all the farms, and uh, that water is coming down into the lagoon. So there is cow sh- pig sh- chicken sh- any kind of shit. We should just do chicken sh- bingo, you know. It's just everywhere, it's, and it stinks. And and wouldn't only be that, that would be chemicals and, you know, stuff. Mm. And then you've got the septic systems that have gone over in Rochester yeah. and also Echuca. So that's coming down the river as well. Then, again, all the chemicals. <laughs> Gosh, the poor river, it, mm. it's... I mean, it's cleansing the land, but it's heading downstream. So it's toxic. We've got – we saw a dead yellow belly this morning. You know, there's dead things and there's um, yabbies trying to get out on, onto the sand hills, getting, you know, on the edge of the water, and it's it's not nice. You wouldn't – you don't even want to walk in it. It makes your skin itchy now. Yeah. You know, so we have to put waders on to go in. Another issue I keep talking about is the sandbags because what happened here is um, we had a town meeting you know, before the flood arrived and um, the SES and our local member Peter Walsh was there and, you know, la da they were all there and um, and I asked for 400 sandbags and I was promptly told that uh, that was a little bit too many to be asking for but also that there were, will not be issued in this area until it was an emergency. So the sandbags weren't available until the actual emergency when I couldn't get out. Mm. You know, it's too late once the emergency is there. We downstream, they need to be doing it before it gets there. Yeah, and and get more sandbags. We use pillowcases. Um, we use doona covers. We cut up doona covers and made like sausages out of sand. And mm. you know, luckily I've got my own sand hill, so I could just take sand from here. And we just make sure you get as much as you can because eventually you you can't go there anymore. You can't leave. It's too late. Yeah. And it creeps in. You think, I've got another few hours, but it creeps in. And then before you know it, next minute, (laughs) it'll off in. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the other thing I must say, I have to say in in, um, support of the flood, is that there is this other beauty that you just don't see. You know, have you seen some of the photos of the reflections of the trees and, oh, my God, it's spectacular. You know, and you can see the floodplains that that have been dry for so long just gulping it all in. Mm. You know, it's saturated. So many trees falling down too. But, uh, you know, there is an absolute beauty in it as well. It's just magnificent. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. That was Tuesday Brow, keeping her spirits up in what can only be described as the latest one-in-100-year natural disaster. Next up, we'll hear from Lorraine Looney, the caravan park manager in Menindee. And whilst Menindee has seen a lot of water in the last 12 months, they've not yet experienced flood conditions in the town. But that may be about to change, with a prepare-to-evacuate order issued for residents along the river and on the outskirts of town. Both of these interviews were conducted by Dan Schultz of Two Dry FM. So, how long how long have you been in Menindee? Uh, we um, bought a property uh, just as a weekender, and then we came out here to live in 1975. That was probably about six months before we hit the peak of the flood. 
Yeah, right. So you'd only been living there for six months um, yes. mm. when the flood hit in 1976. And yeah. could, what was what was your experiences of the of the flood then? What do you remember? Mm, well, I remember that uh, I thought it was odd that we'd only just got to Menindee and then the, the river was rising and uh, we had to put levee banks up around the property and it, there was a lot of water when it was coming down then. It was massive. I had a couple of young children that I had to worry about. And, but anyway, it all worked out fine. And uh, the, the kids used to go out in our laneway, which the lane went up to the main road. They used to go swimming in the water there. But they had a lot of fun with it. And back then, um, oh, I remember that the gum trees were very lush back then. There was You could hardly see the branches of the trees through the green of the, the leaves on it. But uh, over the years, they have deteriorated with all the salty water pockets that have come through, you know, sometimes lack of water. And after the flood, the, our river here at the town area was just alive with yabbies. And people were getting yabbies all the time on the weekends and feasting on them. But that was just uh, part of life out here. You just accepted what you had. So the flood was, was good in a way. Um, obviously yes. for the ecosystem and, and... Oh, my oath it was. It, everything benefited from it. But uh, people now, I think they, they don't know what a real flood is. As I said, if you put the river up a, another metre, they'd all be panicking. Um, we had a fair few people that were on the river back then because they were still building the main road. And so we had... Uh, the only access to town was over the old railway bridge and, and most people come to town in their little tinnies and where the um, old punt crossing was, people used to go and tie their boats up at the punt crossing, go and do their shopping and go back. And we had one bloke that he used to uh, go down through Quick Park of a night time after he'd been to the pub and get lost <laughs> and he sounded like a lawnmower going round and round in between the trees. Uh, until he either ran out of fuel or somebody would go and rescue him in the morning. Did he have a bit much to drink? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Quite a few people did that type of thing. I can remember my husband coming home in the dark one night and he got out the wrong side of the boat and ended up drenched. That was in the middle of the winter. And so I, I know you did mention um, when I spoke to you the other day that water quality is is a big issue and and um obviously you've just talked about your your river red gums and things that that don't really appreciate the kind of quality of water that that comes down that river anymore could you talk talk a little bit more about how that impacts the the town yeah well um as i said like in 1976 when we were first here um everything survived and then over the years uh when we never had so much water coming through I think a lot of the uh, chemicals and everything were getting into the river system and coming down, and that never made your river very healthy. And that, and uh, quite often there were salt pockets come through, and people that were growing grapes, uh, the salt pockets would uh, interfere with the grapevines and do damage there. I remember one salt pocket coming through, and I had a heap of ferns growing in a fernery, and they all died just from the salt pocket. So it doesn't do the ground much good. It takes years to regenerate again. But as I said, the water quality had deteriorated. And then in about 1986, the water mob went and uh, put filtered water on in town. Um, when the children went to school previous to that, um, all the taps were only just raw water that they were drinking. 
it never seemed to affect anybody back then. But now you don't see anyone liking to drink the river water. They all rely on bottled water if it's bad, either that or out of rainwater tanks. Uh, even the, the water quality before it got that bad that the people living in the environs, the people that's outside of the river area, uh, were getting uh, water delivered because the quality of the water was that bad that you couldn't even shower in it. And until it came good, uh, that's what people relied on. And then they've even uh, put a bore in. And when the quality of the water wasn't real good, they were taking water out the bore, which is ridiculous when you've got a, a river and a, a lot of lakes here that are normally full of water. You'd think that you'd never, ever get water from a, a bore. But that's what we've been reduced to over the years. And you just have to learn to accept it. And then when things went really bad, like we've had fish kills until a couple of years ago, we had the major fish kill and which destroyed thousands and thousands of fish. They were there floating on the river. It was so cruel. And since then, the government plied us with money to get our bitumen road done down to Perncary. We've been fighting for years to get the bitumen road and with no funding, it never went ahead. And I think it was just a, something to pay us off to keep us quiet. Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the National Community Radio Network. The other day when I had a yarn with you, you also mentioned that that um, there's a lot of chaos and a lot of panic about this flood from community members, but also, you know, you, you, you were reflecting upon the 1976 flood and you, you were saying that they were pretty accurate and they gave you plenty of warning for that flood, even yes. though it was bigger. Could you tell us yeah. a little bit about how it, it's quite yeah. a different environment now um, when it yeah, comes uh, to flood management? Yes, it's certainly different. Back when we first uh, came out here and my husband decided to put a levee bank up, he realised that um, in 1956, um down at Wentworth, they put a lot of levee banks up and that held the water back and was very successful. So we decided that we were going to do the same. Uh, but then when we were building the, the levee up, we needed to know uh, how high to build the levee to keep the flood water out. And my husband made inquiries. And when they um, he came home, he said to me they, uh, the level and we calculated what we thought. And they were about or just a couple of centimetres out from what their um, figures were, and that was six weeks before we actually had a flood. But now um, the townspeople go to meetings and ask for you know, how much water's coming and everything else, and so many years later they cannot tell you accurately how much water's coming down. And why do you think that is? What's going on there? Well, uh, back in 1976, that was only when um, people started growing cotton and the bigger irrigators started coming in and up the top of um, New South Wales and Queensland there, they started growing cotton. They banked a lot of uh, areas off to hold water. They built big dams that hold masses amount of water. And so now the calculation is different because it was straightforward back in 1976 because we just had the straight flow of water coming and they knew exactly what was coming. Now when you fill all the dams and everything out up the top, I don't think they know now how much water is actually in the system. Yeah, right. That's interesting. So the development um, of the of the floodplain and the development along the river is is kind of uh, confusing. Sort of the measurements of, of yeah, of it is. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean they can blame climate change to a certain extent, 
Um, we don't have as many floods as what we used to have, but um, even so, climate change it, it doesn't justify what they're saying. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. That was Lorraine Looney, Caravan Park Manager at Menindi on the Darling Barker River. And earlier we heard from Tuesday Brow, who's living in her boat after her house on the Murray River was flooded in October. And floods aren't all that's happening in environment news. The COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, is well underway. And taking us out to the end of the program will be a collection of perspectives from Indigenous people from around the globe. These interviews were collected, produced and shared under Creative Commons by Indigenous Rights Radio. And you can see more of their work at rights.culturalsurvival.org. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Earth Matters program. You can listen back by going to 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters or searching Earth Matters 3CR wherever you get your podcasts. We'd like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is usually produced on the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Melbourne, but today's episode was produced on Willyakali Country. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time for more Earth Matters. Hello, I'm called Aisha Tumanu. I'm coming from Cameroon. I belong to the Bororo Indigenous Pastoralist Community. And uh, basically climate change, climate change has really impacted on our lives, especially that of women and girls. Uh, we, we now uh, see uh, new diseases appearing within our communities that we never had before. The, we have lack of potable water in our communities. We have, uh, the, the, we, as pastoralists, we also have issues with the grazing. So our, pasto, our pasture is dying and our animals are also dying. So uh, we have lost of biodiversity. Our forests are being destroyed as well. So uh, I would wish uh, for this COP for them to respect the pledge they took for COP20 and equally uh, give direct finances to indigenous organizations so that they can work at the grassroots level in order for them to change the narrative because we are the holders of knowledge and we are not involved in decisions when they are taken. So we urge the decision makers to ensure that indigenous voices are taken into consideration and that the aspect of loss and damage is also taken into consideration for us to ensure that right uh, the rights of indigenous communities are respected. Sego Tanse Angel Levesque Brandt from Tainanega Mohawk Territory in Canada. Um, I'm with Indigenous Climate Action as the youth delegate. This is my first time at COP and I'm here representing all the Indigenous youth voices within Canada and within my group. We, this is my first time at COP, so what I hope to bring to COP is representation from Indigenous youth. Um, within Canada, youth voices are often misrepresented or underrepresented. So to be able to be a youth in this space and to be able to speak and talk on behalf of the youth in Canada, um, this is a great opportunity. And um, I also want to bring to light Indigenous rights and sovereignty within Canada. So... 
Within my community, we really strive for clean drinking water. We really strive for just our voices being heard within climate justice movements. Frontline activists are currently on the lines defending our communities and Canada. So I'm, I'm really hoping to hear from other frontline activists here at COP and other Indigenous voices to see what they can bring. And hopefully we can all work together to have um, policy changed and to work on something together t to better um, the climate. My name is Tungaray. I work with Nepal Federation of Indigenous Nationalities. I'm here because um, we have a lot to say and a lot to offer to the climate discourse and climate change negotiation. Yet we all know that Nepal is so diverse in terms of ecology, in terms of uh, ethnicity, and also the you know the different uh, type of um, ecology in the country. So the impact of climate change is really diverse and really. Um, really urgent in our communities because in the mountains the snow is melting so fast and in the lowlands there is a flood and also you know snow melt floods and a lot of climate emergencies are happening uh, in different places. Uh, in this context indigenous peoples are in the forefront of negative impacts of climate change because of the lack of capacity and also access to lack of access to other services, policy discourse, and a lot of things. Mm. So, uh, my expectation here in COP27 is that uh, it's time to uh, get Paris Agreement implemented. Well, it gets to implementation phase. Indigenous peoples have a lot to say, and indigenous peoples have a lot to. Um, bring to the COP discussion. So I would urge all the negotiators and uh, policy makers, decision makers here that they have to listen to indigenous peoples, they have to hurt indigenous peoples because indigenous peoples have a distinct experiences in terms of climate change and also in terms of climate change adaptation, mitigation and um, uh, even climate change mitigation and adaptation technology. We have our own distinct worldviews, own distinct lifeways, which has a lot to offer to climate change mitigation and adaptation, which has usually been undermined in climate change discourse. So my expectation would be our leaders, meaning the indigenous leaders and activists who are here, would bring our voice very clearly, loudly and effectively, uh, on the other side, the policymakers, the parties must hear our voices, must look into the realities on the ground, must recognize our rights because we are just not the stakeholders. We are the right holders of our land. At the end, Paris Agreement will be implemented on the ground, on the land, that is our land. So that will impact us in either ways. We want it to be impacted in a positive way, not in a negative way. We have a lot of ne negative impact already by climate change itself, but we don't want Paris Agreement implementation gets negative impact changes in its people. And that's all for this week's program of Earth Matters. I'd like to again thank Indigenous Rights Radio and also Dan Schultz of Waterwatch at 2 FM for supplying all of our interviews today.